0: are a visionary you have a vision you just need to create it and bring it to life welcome to visionary leader extraordinary life with your host kate ebner our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want now here's your host kate ebner
1: Good morning, and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Uh, each week I have a conversation with people who bring vision and action to their lives, making a big difference in the world. This week my guest is Robert Egger, founder of the DC Central Kitchen, which has been building long-term solutions to hunger, poverty, and homelessness since Robert founded it in 1989. You know, in the years since then, D.C. Central Kitchen has served more than 25 million meals for low-income and at-risk neighbors in the Washington, D.C. area. D.C. Central Kitchen does more, however, than dish out 5,000 meals a day. And We're going to talk about um, what Robert has built and where he's going next. Welcome to the show this morning, Robert.
3: Thanks, Kate. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Well, I'm so glad you are. As we were chatting a moment ago, we're um, in receiving mode, ready for this Hurricane Sandy to strike. But, um, you know, both of us are on the job and you've told me that the D.C. Central Kitchen never closes. So I want to just shout out to all of the people there who are dedicated to making sure that um, people are fed and safe in a storm like this. So thank you to those folks. So as we get get talking today, Robert, um, I'm struck as I learn about your endeavor with DC Central Kitchen by um, what how what a big enterprise it really is. I know you offer culinary job training. For unemployed men and women, I know you have a food recycling program that's turning surplus food into thousands of balanced meals every day and every morning. And I know that your first helping team goes out on the street to make sure that warm meals and social services are provided to chronically homeless residents of DC's Wards 7 and 8. You also have broken ground with social enterprise with a school food program that's serving about probably close to 5,000 made-from-scratch meals to 2,000 low-income D.C. school children and is delivering fresh produce and healthy snacks to 30 corner stores in D.C.'s food deserts where access to nutritious food options are limited. You know, you've got a campus kitchen program that actually spreads out across the nation. So the name D.C. Central Kitchen, you know, maybe the operative word there is central because you've got such a big reach. And um, so I'd love for you to start out, Robert, by just telling us, how did this all come to be? Could you just give us a, that, that story?
3: Sure. I mean, you know, I always kind of start things with, you know, hello, my name is Robert, and I'm a recovering hypocrite. Because, <laughs> um, you know, for years, years and years, my great dream was to open uh, the greatest nightclub in the world. I, I labored uh, with a young man's intensity um, all through my, you know, late teens and 20s working in nightclubs in town, because I was really mesmerized by the power of music to sometimes transport people from a place of fear uh, or trepidation to a place of joy and openness. You know, I was 10 uh, in 1968, and uh, my family, we were living in uh, the Los Angeles area when Robert Kennedy was assassinated just two months after Dr. King, and you know, the America was just sh- shaken to its core, and you know there was there were riots in the streets and, and everything. Yet a couple of months later, you know, I remembered watching uh, my parents had a party and people were dancing to music that, in effect, was saying the exact same things that Dr. King and Robert Kennedy were saying. Things that that caused so much concern when spoken as a speech. Um, somehow, when put to music, people could accept it and open up to it. So that really, as a young man, I became mesmerized by that power music had, and that's what I did. Um, and I was very good at it. Um, But at the same time, um, I was uh, lucky enough, a young woman uh, came into uh, one of the nightclubs I uh, worked at, uh, ordered a drink, and stole my heart, uh, and we wanted to get married. Um, And we were looking for a place. There was this little church down in the bottom of uh, Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and Mm -hmm. one of the things they did that I thought was really kind of neat was that they went out along with seven other churches and synagogues to serve people who were sleeping on the streets of Washington, D.C., this was in the in the mid '80s, and you know, there's there always been people on the outside, but this was, you know, really, you know, you were starting to see homelessness at a very different level. And like many people, I was concerned, but I was very hesitant to be engaged on a personal level. And when I was asked once by this church group if they if I would go out and serve the homeless with them, you know, I really looked for every reason to get out of it. I was really, uh, you know, very much a reluctant volunteer. Um, and the long and short of it is, I ended up going out of this truck and asked two very simple questions on the way out. You know, where does the food come from? And was kind of shocked to find that it was it was purchased uh, at one of the most expensive stores in D.C. And I kept thinking, man, that's interesting because I work in an industry that throws away a lot of food. And I knew that it wasn't just restaurants. It was hotels and caterers and universities. So I kept thinking, wow, that's an interesting, you know, kind of observation. But then what really struck me, I think, turned me around a little bit was, when we served people that night you know i was in a warm truck as we pulled up in front of the state department and started serving people who were outside in the rain you know not as nearly as as intense as it is today but nonetheless a good steady rain and i just kept thinking this is really well intended and it's historic and it's traditional but it's not it it doesn't work and for heaven's sakes you know i'm in the warm truck and people are outside in the rain i'm the one more or less being served here so you know that that really kind of ate at me And, and, and the fact that the driver of the truck knew everybody by first name and was calling people and saying, in effect, see you tomorrow night, see you tomorrow night, over and over. That just really rang in my ears. Uh, and I really felt that, you know, America is better than this, that we as a people are better than this. So I just I just came back a, a couple of months later with a little business plan that was, frankly, based on FedEx, you know, a new business model. But this idea was if you could bring all this food to a central hub, you could feed more people better food for less money. But what I really wanted to do was and promote was this idea of saying, but look, you know, if you if you offer men and women who are outside in the rain a chance to come in off the street and be part of the solution themselves, not only can you feed more people better food for less money, but you can actually shorten the line at the very time you're serving the line. And I thought this would be kind of a revolution that, frankly, would be welcomed with opened arms. But like many um, entrepreneurs, um, you know, you, you think through an idea and you figure you've got it all all kind of worked out and you assume that people will... We'll say, you know, hail, thank you very much. What a great idea. We get it. Uh, and what happens is, oftentimes people don't get it. And in this case, people really didn't get it. They, they told me I was naive, that I was, that it was illegal, that people thought it was, you know, that the restaurants, uh, couldn't donate food because the health department wouldn't let them, which is, uh, an urban myth. There's laws that actually facilitate the donation of food in every state. But more importantly, I was shocked by how many people thought that you couldn't train the homeless. And that really threw me for a loop. So, the kitchen, I'd love to, to have your, your readers or your listeners rather think that, you know, somehow, you know, I'm a great humanitarian who started the kitchen because of my love for my fellow man. And while that is there, um, it really was started because no one else would do it. And I think like like many people, I just thought it would be, it wasn't as hard as people thought. And I figured I could get it going and then go back to running nightclubs. But here we talk some 25 almost mm-hmm. years later.
1: <laughs> and there you are uh, doing it. Well, I I like to hear you tell this story and especially because, you know, the the idea that, oh, this makes so much sense, you know, surely people will will get this and then they didn't and told you you were naive. And I'm curious, you know, especially for our listeners, many of whom have really phenomenal ideas, but it's so easy to get discouraged. I mean, how did you have the fortitude to kind of, uh, you know, work through it and get this, you know, go despite the naysayers, make it happen?
3: Well, you know, I think it's very important for people like me to acknowledge that, you know, A, I'm, I'm, I was born a white man in America, so I was born with confidence. You know, every every every, part, every aspect of education and, and every aspect of, of the larger society said, you can achieve anything you want. So, you know, it's very important to acknowledge that, you know, I had a lot of advantages right off the bat. And I was confident. I had a great sense of this is what, you know, I, I can do this. And I'll be honest with you also, I came from food service, and I knew it wasn't that hard. I knew that restaurants hated throwing away food. You know, restaurant tours love food; they just didn't want to be sued. So I knew that all you had to do was create kind of a professional environment. But I also knew back in the late '80s that the restaurant industry. See, I'm. I'm I know we're going to talk a little bit about this, but I, I met a guy at a party when I was young, who was like, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And I'm like, you know, he he said, I'm a futurist, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. what is that? And he said, oh, <laughs> you don't, it's not anything big. It's just. I I just pay attention to trends, and I anticipate the future based on what I think you can see coming through trends. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a futurist, too. And so I spent a lot of time wondering about what comes next. And I knew that you were seeing a a rapid kind of um, the last vestiges of the agriculture in a way, and that Americans by the 1970s were really starting to dine out more than they were cooking and eating at home. And I knew that there was going to be a significant increase in the need for food service jobs. And with a little research, I found that in fact, there was going to be an 85% increase of, you know, food service jobs in the next 25 years. So it made a lot of sense. Um, and of course, I didn't mean, you know, bringing homeless people right in off the street. So, you know, right from the get-go, the idea was how can I partner with great agencies and other people who had great ideas who were doing, you know, following their dream. And if I could partner with groups that, for example, got men and women clean and sober or help men and women get in housing, then, They'd be ready for what we were going to offer at the DC Central Kitchen.
1: You know, I like I like to hear you say that. I mean, I, you know, the the recognition of your own um, circumstances and the benefits of you know being being a white male in America with a great idea and a sense of confidence about that. And but also the point you just made about partnership. And, um, you know, they the, you know, the, don't have to go it alone, like, let's match up with other groups. Can you give an example of some groups you partnered with?
3: Well, you know, interesting enough, when we first opened, I partnered with the Republican National Committee. Um, you know, I, again, I knew that there was – I knew that, that this trepidation about donating food was, was based on a myth, you know, again, that it was illegal. Um, and I also knew that George Bush Sr. had been talking a lot about, you know, points of light and, and, and the role Americans need to play in the larger civil discourse – um, and I knew they were going to have food left over. So, you know, I did one of those classic, you know, called over the course of three days waiting for that inevitable elevator pitch moment. You know, that moment of truth that any entrepreneur gets. <laughs> where Suddenly they realize the person they've been trying to get a hold of to pitch their dream is staying there right in front of them. And, you know, that paid off because I said, in effect, look, you're going to have big parties. You're going to have food left over. I have a refrigerated truck. Let's launch both you know, the presidency and the DC Central Kitchen at the same time. I will come and handle the food professionally, and I'll make sure that any food leftover goes to men and women who were homeless or hungry in Washington, D.C. the next day. And not only did they like it, but frankly, again, based on my nightclub background, I knew that no media outlet in the world could resist that image. So right from day one, we exposed the power of partnership because, you know, by having President Bush Sr. donate food from the inaugurations, we showed that not only could this work in Washington, D.C., but we showed, in effect, this can work in any city because it's not illegal. The president of the United States just donated food. And, you know, again, at the time, and it's only gotten worse, Americans were thrown away. At, 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 in those early days, the estimate was about 25 percent of the food we produced every single day. Now it's estimated that we're throwing away almost 40% of the food that we produce every single day. And and, and of that, fully half is fruits and vegetables. So, you know, the idea mm. of the kitchen was based on what's already here. How can we just use it a different way?
1: Robert, your team has an approach that is really a model of... I don't know, what's the word, resourcefulness, um, innovation, um, but I know your central principle, empowerment, you know, one of your central principles seems to be, or at least I I, I picked this from your website and also from talking with you, that we use food as a tool to strengthen community. We just have a couple minutes before a break, but could you just elaborate on this idea of using food as a tool to strengthen community?
3: Yeah, well, you know, sometimes we view food as almost just gasoline for the body, and, you know, to me, food is community. Food is, in effect, you know, it is the way families used to come together, villages, peoples used to come together and talk about, you know, the past, the future. And so we wanted to do the same thing, show that food had tremendous power to, to help people get jobs, to make sure people were nourished and continue to rise up, to generate growth in the community. So, again, what we've had is a long series of grand experiments on how we can reveal the power of food.
1: Wow. You know, I had a guest um, on the show recently, Um a uh, Councilman from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, who Joe Simperman, who was uh, really developing renown for Cleveland because of the urban farming movement that they're really putting into place, and he was his part of his vision was what if what if we f- we focused on feeding each other? You know, what if that was our primary objective? And he talked a lot about the, um, the community building aspect of, um, of food, actually. So we're going to take a break right now, Robert. When we come back, I really want to, uh, I really want our, our audience to get a sense of how you think and the ideas that you have put together. Um, what's so exciting to me about having you on the show today, among other things, is your, your ability to, um, to manifest action and outcomes out of what you can see. So we'll come back after this break and talk about that. This is Kate Ebner, visionary leader, extraordinary life.
2: Always talking business, talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit nebocompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's nebocompany.com.
2: We're hearing more and more about the cloud and how we're using the cloud in our daily lives, whether we're aware of it or not. How can the cloud help your business? Join Bonnie D. Graham every Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time for In the Cloud with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. And learn how to make your business soar to new heights. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to VisionaryLeader at NeboCompany.com. Now, back to today's program.
1: Welcome back. This is Kate. Thank you for joining me today. I'm speaking with Robert Egger, the founder and president of the D.C. Central Kitchen, the country's first community kitchen where food donated by hospitality businesses and farms is used to fuel a nationally recognized culinary arts job training program where unemployed men and women learn marketable skills while donations are converted into balanced meals. Since opening in 1989, The Kitchen has produced over 25 million meals and helped 1,000 men and women gain full-time employment. Robert and I have been talking about um, how this all got started. And I was talking to you, Robert, on the break a little bit about this. I sort of said, who, who are you? You know, how did you, how, how did, where did you come from? How did you get this idea? And um, I know that you're an, an Oprah angel. You're, you've been named as one of the points of light by the Bush administration, the first Bush administration. Um, but who are you? T- tell us a little bit more about, about you as a, as a human being coming into this work.
3: Wow. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I just I have always, I'm just a regular old Joe. I mean, you know, I'm an American in many respects, uh, in that, you know, this idea of, and I, I really speak about this a lot, that, you know, it's every generation's kind of obligation, but also the right to, to redraw the map, you know, redefine the rules. And so that sense of just because we did it this way doesn't mean we have to do it forever. So this this kind of challenging the system. I, I kind of tend to be a person who's like, can't we do this better? Isn't there a faster, stronger, smarter way to do this, but and, and achieve better outcomes? So uh, for me, I mean, like I said, there was this there was this earnest kind of almost deeply American kind of desire to, you know, leave the community better than I found it. You know, whether it was being a Boy Scout when I was a kid. I'm, I mean, like many people, I've got a million different kind of motivators, but it, deeply, that's part of. What I'm doing is this sense of obligation that, you know, it's your job as an American, given all that we've been given, you know, to, you know, make it somehow better. So that's all I do is constantly challenge assumptions and ideas and say, in effect, is there a different way to do that that at the end liberates people? That's really what interests me is how do you set people free?
1: Yes, I love that. I mean, how do you set people free? I, th- I, think, I think we all probably have a question that um, animates us, and maybe that's your question, Robert. How do we set people free? I think empowerment is a word that's very important to you. Um, What's been most gratifying to you about the time, the decades you've put into D.C. Central Kitchen?
3: Oh, wow, there's so many things. I mean, you know, it's been exciting to see how many other cities have adapted this model, and we're open source. You know, I've always... Wanted, my attitude has always been, if we have anything you need, it's yours. Come and get it. You know, we're happy to share. So that really led to about 60 other cities developing models, you know, based loosely. On this summer, really, almost exactly to the point of, you know, we developed a, a 12-week curriculum for men and women. You know, we really wanted to make this a, a good, solid, real training program, but we knew that a lot of the men and women who were going to come to the program weren't going to have the luxury of months to study, you know, the culinary arts. So we wanted to set was this really strong system in which people could, you know, come in, get through, help heal the city. You know, what you hear so often is men and women who say, as a young man or as a young woman, I tore this city up. And I went to prison for a long time to make up for those crimes. But now I'm part of healing that city again. Uh, And I really want to emphasize that when I talk about empowerment or setting people free, it isn't. Just the men and women who come through the job training program, nor is it the men and women who maybe get a meal every day because of our work. But it's it's the thousands of volunteers who come through, who were just like me sometimes burdened by their own sense of stereotype or limits on what they can accomplish. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Oprah Angel thing, which was a great honor, and Oprah's been very very good to me over the years. But at the same time, you know, we had an interesting discussion about the whole word "angel," uh, that in effect. You know, I'm a I'm a recovering <laughs> sinner. I'm I'm a, you know I try my best, but I'm just a regular dude who who like many <laughs> I have all the faults of any man. You know, mm-hmm. but at the same time I'm trying. You know, so but that idea that somehow um, you know there's a difference between what I've been lucky to to be able to do and what most people want to be part of. You know, I think that's that's what your program taps into is the the thousands of millions of people out there who want to be part of making you know their community, this country. Uh, stronger, Uh, and I think that's a glorious part of of our country uh, and our heritage.
1: Thank you for that answer. That's a very complete answer, and I appreciate that. I I, want to draw us back to a a point you made earlier about, um, you know, you're you're a social entrepreneur, and you have developed sources of funding for D.C. Central Kitchen that give you – we were talking a little bit about how you're able to handle an emergency such as Hurricane Sandy in terms of staffing and resourcing um, DC Central Kitchen so that you can operate under conditions like this. And and I, I'd love for you to just explain to people um, your, how that model works. You know, the, the, the nonprofit model and, and how the social entrepreneur piece fits.
3: Yeah. Well, again, you know, I came in uh, really pretty well uh, versed in the the business of food. So when we started the kitchen, the idea is let's take the food that was thrown away, people that are society undervalued, kitchens that were underutilized, agencies that were buying food when they really wanted to liberate people, chefs who had jobs and would help teach. You know, I just reorganized the pieces. Uh, But at the same time, it was like, look, I you know, I I kind of, I was wandering into nonprofit land. I had never been there before. And as much as I rapidly grabbed a hold of the grant process, it was very successful. People really dug what we were doing. I think more than anything else, because we, we touched on this amazingly raw nerve in America, uh, because there was a, 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 an underlying sense of guilt, uh, I think, that all Americans had about the amount of food that we all knew was wasted. And there was a, a tremendous enthusiasm for our program because we were using it so uh, interestingly uh... but at the same time it's like i don't want to be kind of a slave to the the grant system here i want to go out and earn our own money um... for a lot of different reasons and, you know a i wanted to take this proven show on the road i mean we had thousands of volunteers coming through um and we discovered very early that the power of uh, a man or woman in a job training program working side by side with a volunteer uh... which is you know all the way from the president of the states you know, movie stars, school children. You know, it's like this idea of we're all residents of a shared city. Let's work together, side by side, to make it better. You know, but that's that's a huge part. So we developed very early a volunteer program and kind of a culture that we started calling the you know the calculated epiphany that we wanted people to leave with new ideas, but we wanted to we wanted those ideas to be their ideas. You know, I didn't want to tell people what to think. So we tried to set the stage every day where volunteers would leave saying, in effect you know, wow, I never thought about food that way. I never thought I could have such a great conversation with someone who was, you know, so different than me or out of prison or, or a drug addict or if somebody's on the street for all those years. You know, I never thought I could do that. So that's kind of what we set out to do. So catering allowed us to take that idea on the road into people's homes so that in effect people could say, hey, everybody, you know, I'm really glad you had a great time at the party tonight. And I want you to know before you leave that the men and women who served you tonight and the organization that catered our event was the D.C. Central Kitchen. You know, that means people at that party stop and say, whoa, 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 you mean the people who served me tonight are those men and women? That, but wait a second, that's a, that program works with felons and homeless people. Oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't know the difference. You know, so we, we, we try and find ways to subtly help people over these, these understandable and common misconceptions or stereotypes. So catering did that. You know, I've always said, look, we make, we make money, but it's change I'm really after. Um, It's just a glorious byproduct that we've been able to make. Uh, Now we're up to almost 60% of our own income, and I just want to reiterate: this is this is such a team effort, and so much of our our recent uh, successes, in particular, the 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 work we're doing with school foods in uh, D.C., which is I think one of the most interesting kind of school food experiments in America. That's really been driven by an amazing me amazing management team led by Mike Curtin who is Mm -hmm. our CEO, who has taken my idea to amazing new heights of productivity.
1: Yes, I know you have a a, a very effective team in place. And, you know, one thing that you said to me, Robert, as we were contemplating today's conversation is, I was asking you, you know, what kind of leadership is needed to manifest big ideas? And you said leaders don't create followers, they create
3: more leaders. Right on.
1: Yeah, you said it sounds good in principle, it's harder in practice. How have you been able to do that?
3: Well, again, you know, I tell you, um, power is not something that people kind of innocently uh, uh, let go of. I mean, it's very difficult, and it sounds good. You know, the idea of I want to be that kind of leader that has lots of strong people around them and really gives them the power to make decisions. You know, I'll be honest with you, uh, you know, I witnessed a lot of people who I really kind of admired early in my career. And, And the more I went down the road, the more I realized that some of these men weren't men and women weren't really leaders they were bosses and i started to really see the difference between leaders and bosses and i never wanted to become um, that you know uh, like i said you know when i started the kitchen i didn't want to do it i wanted to give what i thought was a great easy idea to someone as a gift literally um, and so you know because i was rebuffed i never ever wanted to do that to another person you know so the kitchen has been an experiment not just in the kind of traditional you know expanding top leadership But, for example, we have a volunteer bill of rights, and it's on our website, you know, that allows people, anybody who comes in the kitchen, to kind of rate their experience. You know, one of our rights is you have the right to talk to any staff member. You know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have permission to ask any question of anybody in this organization. And in a way, that's kind of a almost a volunteer bill of rights because it ensures that from the management's perspective, you know, that that staff are just as excited, just as enthusiastic, and have just as much ownership as I do, you know, so that idea of, of giving people a lot of different, um, you know, ways in which they contribute was essential from the beginning, but it doesn't mean, you know, as I got a little bit further down the road, and uh, as some of your listeners may know, it, they'll know now, I've just recently announced that I am stepping down from the DC Central Kitchen after many, many years. You know, that in effect, here we just started our 90th class. Uh, we just opened our 33rd campus kitchen down at University of Georgia in Athens, a, a program I'm wildly proud of. Um, you know, we're earning sixty percent of our own income. It's like peace out, brothers and sisters. You got, you got <laughs> the ball from here on out. Um, that's a process. You know, letting go and really, truly stopping and saying, you know, I've been really lucky. I've got to be on Oprah. I've got to, I've got to meet you know all kinds of famous people uh, in my life, uh, and I've gotten so many prizes. That's hard to let go of. You know, that that is. It's truly hard. I, as much as it sounds really good, it took me a good two or three years. And, frankly, uh, the, the help of a lot of friends um, to finally stop and say, you know what, it is time for me to move on. Um, so this is a lot of the discussions I have with a lot of colleagues now about that idea of transitional leadership and how many people uh, necessarily, might not necessarily have to leave the organization, but at least help them learn how to loosen the grip
1: you know, we're going to take a break here in just a second. And Robert, I know that, you know, that you are moving out of what you called your kitchen mission, uh, making sure that people are fed, you know, what you call the fill your belly school. And you're moving into a another idea, um, another vision that you have that relates to uh, a future trend that you can see. And so we're going to take a break here. And when we come back from the break, I want to invite you, Robert, to really share what, what you what you're doing next, and what you can see, and uh, we'll also continue to reflect on on what you've um, founded here here in DC, and maybe the broader implications of of this food uh, trend that you're really you've really been following for for decades. Well, I can hardly um, wait. I know, me too. Well, we're we're going to take that break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to dive right into that. We'll be cool. right back.
2: voice america business network the bottom line in business
0: do you want to take your organization to the next level The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's nebocompany.com.
2: Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough to succeed. You must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills.
0: Listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call in to 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program.
1: You know, Robert Egger and I have been talking this morning about the work he's done through the DC Central Kitchen and soon LA Kitchen, we're going to talk about this. This visionary leader sees solutions and mobilizes people and resources to deliver on them. He was included in the 50 most powerful and influential nonprofit leaders list of the nonprofit times for three years in a row. Um, he's received the James Beard Foundation Humanitarian of the Year Award. He's been named an Oprah angel, a point of light, and one of the 10 most caring people in America by the Caring Institute. You know, Robert, I would say you're a really good guy. You would say I'm just a regular Joe. <laughs> but what I wanted to get back to is this LA kitchen idea, you know, this um this. This new trend that you're tracking and and your vision for where you want to go next with your life and your work. So, with no further ado, why don't you tell us about that?
3: Well, you know, it's funny when I start, started getting into this business, um, you know, I became wildly aware of uh, you know the the legacy, the amazing history of you know uh, the efforts that had, that had been made in America. To feed people, to house people, to help uh, people who were coming out of prison, you know, people are homeless. But at the same time, you know, I, like many people, saw that the numbers weren't decreasing. So I became really interested in systems and new ideas, um, and and oftentimes, you know, rigidity of thought. You know, the the fact that nine times out of ten, in fact, to this day, I still encounter um, a lot of people who are really um, resistant. You know, they don't look in the mirror and see somebody who's resistant, but in fact, the way they lead their organization you know, really limits their sense of opportunity. So anyway, as I started going on, I really started to kind of pay attention to different trends. And about 1997, 98, you know, I, I kind of encountered uh, somebody who was leading Meals on Wheels. And I became mesmerized by the fact that there was a waiting list in America uh, in half uh, of American cities for Meals on Wheels back in the 1990s. And I kept thinking, well, you know, it's a ways off, but in 2006, the first baby boomer was going to turn 60, And, wow, if there's a waiting list now, what happens then? And at the same time, I was really wildly aware that, you know, at the end of the day, as much as there were pantries and food banks and kitchens opening up, and that there was still a lot of food left over in America, for the most part, what we were recycling was, in effect, lost profit. That, you know, the food that the restaurants, the hotels, the caterers donated, the, you know, all this stuff, that was purchased. You know, it took a lot of labor to get that food to the point where it was ready to be served. And then when it couldn't be served, you know, it was thrown away. You know, so that idea that as, as, as many bells and whistles as I could put on, you know, uh, why it was great business to donate food. You know, and again, we were saying, look, we'll provide uh, receipts so that you can write it off. You and your accountant can determine how much money you can write off. We'll, we'll provide the containers. We'll bring refrigerated trucks. We'll give you seals for your window. They'll let your customers know that you don't throw away food. And more importantly, we'll provide entry-level people who can show up on time and help you make money, you know, uh, with our graduates. So it was a good business proposition, but I knew that those men and women, their number one goal was to decrease waste. And I also knew, again, listen, I hope your listeners are kind of appreciating this idea of trends and how you can put them together. You know, when well, the kitchen opened, uh Within a couple of years, all of a sudden, cable television and the internet were around. And cable, I could see very quickly that food programs were really very very exciting for people. And then I started to realize that you know what was in effect only two real cooking schools in America: the Culinary Institute in Hyde Park or Johnson and Wales in Providence. All of a sudden, they were opening branches all around America. And all of a sudden, colleges and even high schools started to open culinary arts programs similar to ours. And what I knew that meant is over the next 10, 15 years, an army of people are going to come surging into restaurants and hunting for ways in which they could apply all the new inventory controls they were learning in these schools to decrease the amount of food coming in. So long story short, very long ago I became hyper-aware of the future being less food and more hungry people, you know, uh, particularly our elders. This just frightens the bejesus out of me that, you know, we've got 80 million people who, for all intents and purposes, haven't saved as much money as they'll need to kind of take care of themselves in their later years, uh, in, the, in the extra years that uh, science is going to allow. So L.A. Kitchen is kind of a, an interesting experiment because, as I mentioned earlier, we throw away about 40% of the food we produce every day in America, and half of that is fruit and vegetables. And no other state in, in the country, and probably in the world, produces the quality and quantity of fruits and produce that uh, California does. Now, a lot of the reasons those fruits and vegetables don't make it to market as they're cosmetically or geometrically imperfect. You know, for better or worse, Americans will not buy an apple with a bruise on it or, you know, a carrot that doesn't look right. So this opens the doorway for us to go in and, and salvage, if you will, millions of pounds of produce. But the system that we usually employ that I think, frankly, is little dated is that we move food really quickly. It goes from a field to a truck to, uh, you know, a, a food bank, on another truck, to a pantry, in a box, to a person. And it's, de- it's decaying it, all the way down that line. So what I want to be able to do in L.A. is is open a job training program, just like the kitchen, but actually process a lot of that food. So in effect, you'll take the sweet potatoes, peel them, chop them, uh, put them in a cryovac bag and shrink-wrap them, in a, in, and so you can freeze them. So in effect, you take time out of the equation. So that's one aspect. But the other flip side is I really think... And you can see this coming is that the senior of the future is going to look at the typical uh, meal that is provided at a social service agency or, you know, at a, at a, through a Meals on Wheels program. God bless them. But it'll be, you know, here is your, here is your meatloaf and your mashed potatoes and your succotash and your peach cobbler. And they're going to look at it and say, Wow, well, that looks good, but I can't eat that. That food will kill me, you know, because I'm on this medication. So what I anticipate and what I want to roar into is this idea of, extremely healthy meals for seniors, people in recovery. So I'm really looking at pioneering vegetarian, even vegan meals for men and women who are, again, older in recovery. Not exclusively, but I think I really want to focus on that because I think, like I said, uh, we talked earlier, I want to kind of move from the the urgency and the immediacy of filling someone's belly into the school of, I'm going to make you strong. You know, I don't want you merely to survive. I want you to be strong enough to continue on this journey forward, so that in effect we don't say to older people, "Here's a meal, and I'll talk to you for a little bit." Goodbye. What I really want to do is is fundamentally launch a movement about how do we value our elders in America. You know, this is this will be the deepest well of life experience in the history of the world. No other generation has been this rich, this free, this educated, nor will live this long. So the opportunity we have in this country to really again reevaluate the role of our elders. Is something I really want to be part of, and that's part of, you know will be a big part of what we do uh, out at the LA Kitchen.
1: Wow, I love it! And let me ask you, Robert. You know, as you're as you're as you're drawing that up for us and painting that picture, um, I've got a billion questions. But what I want to share that I notice is that you seem to connect the big idea, right? Tapping into this well of um, wisdom. And, and elders um, to ensure that their needs for healthy meals are met, and that we simultaneously are reducing our waste of perfectly good food. All right, so you're able to bring this whole equation together while connecting it to this idea of a, a movement of a, a much a much bigger and more inspiring idea, and for. For everyone who's out there, I, I want to say, you know, this is an interesting moment for us as as um, people learning from you, Robert. You know, s- s- sort of the big idea and then the execution level, and you seem to be good at both. And I'm wondering, first of all, why L A. and what is it? What's it? Could you describe for us the process from, um, you know, from farm, if you will, to elder. You know, how how is this gonna come to be, do you think?
3: Well, A, you know, I grew up in that area. I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was 10 uh, in 1968 when Robert Kennedy was assassinated uh, at the Ambassador Hotel there. Um, so the, to a certain extent, it's, it's my roots. You know, in, mm-hmm. My father was in the Marine Corps, and back in the 1960s, helicopter pilots. My father was a uh, helicopter and jet pilot. You, you know, you basically went to the military base of Southern California before you went to Vietnam. So that's where we were in the 60s, and I still have a big hunk of California. In my heart, uh, even though I've lived in DC now for a better part of 40 years, uh, but again, that's where, you know, I'm going where the the need and the opportunity is. Um, this is where you can, uh, you know, really reclaim just, again, as I suggested, millions and millions of pounds. So I'm still making this up, you know, but what I'm, what I anticipate is that we are going to have a very, very, you know, large kitchen, um, that will, again, be less focused on kind of, picking up the odds and ends of restaurants, but we're really going to focus on the large contributions we can get from the wholesale uh, markets down in Los Angeles and Southern California, but also some of the growers out in the Central Valley. You know, we'd really like to be the spot where they can they know that they can drop this stuff off and we will use it not just to, again, feed the poor, but to be part of a process that I think many people in the business world uh, can really get behind. Uh, you know, you have to really understand a lot of what I really work on is two really I think, big ideas. You know, one is that charity is more about the redemption of the giver, not the liberation of the receiver. So mm-hmm. I definitely always wanted to flip that around and show that if we've done well, everybody rises up, not just the poor. Everybody can be served by a great nonprofit. And I also believe nonprofits can't fix any problem. Sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking, if I just build a bigger kitchen, You know, and it's like, no, 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 but our our great destiny is to lead people to the realization that we have amazing resources in our country, and sometimes the gold we seek is right at our feet. You know, so all I've ever done is say, look at what we throw away, look at what we waste, look at what we undervalue, and look at what just a little bit of of American ingenuity and, and optimism can reveal. You know, so that's a lot of what I do is what's already there, and how can you use it um, differently in a way that again liberates everybody. It gets people excited about this opportunity. So I really see an, uh, a room full of not just older people. Although I really want to see this be a dynamic center for people who are in, you know, anywhere from you know fifty through seventy five, eighty. anybody, anybody. But also, I'm very interested in intergenerational work. I think that's the future. You know, uh, tragically, we feed children in one place and seniors in another. And I think, again, going back to the remnants of the agriculture, you know, the meal was where everyone came together. So I definitely want uh, the L.A. kitchen to be, as the D.C. Central kitchen is, is a place where lots of people can contribute. Um, but what I really see is a significant amount of chopping and dicing going on every day. So it will be, you know, again, hopefully, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, of people on a daily basis contributing to a process, working side by side with men and women in a job training program. Um, I'd really like to explore the idea of producing large, large-scale uh, salads, you know, the idea of providing, you know, really fresh, beautiful salads to different shelters uh, around town. Um, and, you know, interesting enough, I was uh, coming back from L.A. recently, and uh, interesting enough, there was a big article in the New York Times that's saying L.A. is the epicenter of the vegetarian, vegan meal movement in America. Yet throughout the entire article, they really talked about how it was hipsters and movie stars and rich people you know, and I was just saying to myself, this is perfect because what I'm talking about is the same basic idea, but just for poor people, just for older people. You know, why not? Um, So that's, again, that's kind of the two words I use quite a bit. Why not?
1: Why not? You know, on that note, we're going to take a break, Robert. And when we come back, I think you've already given us your vision. I want to just go back to it and give you the chance to to fine-tune it if you want to and, and maybe give us some advice about how we can Uh, become manifestors of vision the way that you are this is Kate Ebner we'll be right back
2: up-to-date business and financial news call now and get the financial information you need 866-472-5790 866-472-5790 the experts are here Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your
0: organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our Leadership and Life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com.
2: Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
0: you're listening to visionary leader extraordinary life with host kate Ebner. we'd love to hear from you pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 If you'd rather send an email, please send it to VisionaryLeader at NeboCompany.com. Now, back to today's program.
1: Thank you for joining me and my guest, Robert Egger, today. Robert speaks throughout the country and internationally on the subjects of hunger, sustainability, nonprofit political engagement, and social enterprise. He has authored a book on the nonprofit sector called Begging for Change, The Dollars and Cents of Making Nonprofits Responsive, Efficient, and Rewarding for All. He writes blogs and editorials to share his ideas about the nonprofit sector and the future of America. And you can check all of this out and learn a lot more about Robert and his work at um, Robert Egger, E-G-G-E-R.org, and I encourage you to go there. Um, Robert, before the break, I promised you that we would come back and give you a chance to just really uh, fine-tune the vision that you laid out for us in the last segment, and I just want to I just want to loop back around. You did a beautiful job, but is there anything else you want to say?
3: Well, yeah, well you know, again, I, as we've talked a couple of times, and as I, I tell anybody who wants to Talk about leadership. You know, it's this idea of anticipating opportunity. You know, I say there's, there's three kinds of leaders. The majority of people have their head down. They're just working hard. They can't see the future because they got to focus on the day-to-day. I dig it. You know, more power. The second group are people who might take a moment and listen to a podcast of your show, you know, or might hear a speaker go to an annual conference, and they get that rare moment where they might get a sense of the future. Now, of those people, of that second group, a lot of them just put their heads back down and kind of go back and do what they did before. You know, others say, in fact, okay, I see the future coming. I'm going to brace for it or start building, make my program bigger so when it hits, we're ready. I think the third kind of leader, and what I would implore, uh, implore all of your leaders to consider is, you know, be that third leader, the people who march out to meet the future. You know, I don't want to wait for a bunch of old people to get old and hungry and poor. I want to march out right now. How can it be part of a larger discussion again? At one level, um, being part of redefining the way we serve our elders in the traditional nonprofit uh, you know, air, air, way, but at the same time as we've alluded to earlier, how do we have a fundamentally larger conversation at the societal level? This includes the political level, you know, that start to say, in effect, you know, we are going to totally, you, you know, our elders are going to play a very different role in America in the future. You know, it's imperative that they stay as 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 productive as long as possible. So, you know, I'm aware of that, but, you know, at the same time, I really want to urge people to also consider the fact that there's 90 million people under 25 in America. This is the most diverse. This is um, obviously uh, the biggest, most technologically advanced generation ever in the history of this country. But I think what's really exciting is, you know, most of these men and women have been raised doing service. You know, they had to perform some level of service to, before they graduated high school. So that means every single university is brimming with a generation who have, many of them, really new, exciting ideas about community and their involvement. And this is why ideas like social enterprise, you know, the idea of gen- uh, nonprofits generating their own money, or frankly businesses that generate money with the sole intention of reinvesting it and making their community stronger. You know, what I see coming is there's various crossroads where, interestingly enough, those 90 million young people who, in effect, are looking for a place, where a, a way to merge, if you will, kind of spirituality, lifestyle, income. You know, they're saying, in effect, look, i got to make some money. I can't work for nothing. But if I can find a job where I don't do harm, I do good, sign me up. And there's an army of young people coming out who will want to launch new businesses in effect, make their philanthropy the way they spend their money every day or the way they make their money every day. And that, I think, is a very, very powerful idea. At the same time, you've got my generation, the baby boomers, you know, every single morning, 10,000 people turn 66. Every single morning. And you can almost, I, I say this all the time, but it's a wonder you can't hear a sigh when you put your head out the window in the morning and you can hear 10,000 people looking in the mirror and saying, in effect, wow, how did I get so lost? You know, I, I've got so many things that I'm, I, that, that I, I was supposed to make me happy, you know, and I've done all these things, but there's something missing. And what I see is an army of them surging into the public arena and oftentimes through nonprofits saying, use me, let me be part of something bigger, you know. And so this idea that both these groups have almost common, common purpose. They're both looking for one, a new way to make a living and, and others to a certain extent a little bit of redemption, but also that way to live their later years in a way that really remind them of the passion they held when they were younger. You know, I always tell people, man, these farmer's markets, the food movement isn't about food. There's a much deeper hunger in America. And it's what it is, is people want to belong, and they want to be part of something again. So that's a a tremendous opportunity from a business perspective, I think, from a social investment, uh, a a social level, but I think also at a political level. And that's a lot of the work I'm doing now.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I'm really glad that I asked you to to expand on what you said, because I think what you just added and especially the invitation for people to be that third leader is uh, so powerful and, and important for us to hear from you. Um, you know I'm curious as, as you're talking and holding both this big view that you hold the big vision as well as the ability to, to turn it around and make something happen. Um, Robert, I'm curious, who inspires you? where do you where do you draw your inspiration or your, your motivation?
3: Oh, so many people. I mean, you know, frankly, my wife, <laughs> but, you know, we've been married 29 years and I still adore, adore, um, my wife. And she just, she's constantly, um, <laughs> but she's such a decent, kind person. I'm almost embarrassed sometimes. I get so many, so much credit. Uh, there's a gentleman who comes into the kitchen once a week. His name's Art, you know, and his brother, um, was murdered and he went to the prison and prayed with the guy who killed his brother. And it's like, wow, could I do that? You know, and again, these are the kind of people I meet who will never get awards or prizes, won't get to be on Oprah, but they're profoundly decent people. You know, it's the men and women who go through our job training program, you know, who, almost to a person, it's almost, we laugh, but it's so poignant, that almost on every graduation day, and again, there's been 89 classes, what you hear is things like I never finished anything before but my prison sentence, you know, and this is something that I am finally finished, you know, I feel needed, I'm... I belong to something bigger now, you know, and that's amazing to me. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm always just uh, I'm in such awe of the 10 million other people who work in nonprofits every single day who go to work. And cr- like today, I mean, everything else on the Eastern Seaboard is closed. The DC Central Kitchen's open. The Red Cross is open. And nonprofits all across this region are bracing and preparing for the inevitability that they will be called into service to help their community heal and rebuild. You know, I'm always in awe of these men and women that I work with. Um, I you know I wish I read more, but I, I I'm always read you know about history and I'm I just intrigued by people who I read about who led independence movements. You know um, I was it was really I think quite touching to see uh, Cesar Chavez's grave uh, listed as a national monument now because um, I think Cesar Chavez and other people who led kind of nonviolent movements. You know you think about Dr. King. Um, you know he said, look the buses it takes to ride up, uh, you know the dimes it takes to ride a bus in Montgomery. Alabama can be the uh, the tools of our independence. Mm-hmm. You know, Cesar mm-hmm. Chavez says the grapes we pick, you know, mm-hmm. can be the tools of our independence. Um,
1: you know, you you um, uh, um you're once again giving us a fantastic answer to my question about who inspires you. But I know we want to talk about the nonprofit sector and your um, commitment to helping us all understand the power and the contribution of the nonprofits. We only have two minutes left, Robert. But let's. Go there, and why don't you tell us what you'd like us to know?
3: Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of a bold statement, but I like to say, look, there's just no profit in America without nonprofits. This is there's a new economics, uh, mathematics, and this is that that both business and nonprofits are equally essential to a community or a country's livelihood. I mean, you know, if you think about it, you know, what makes cities really livable and attractive for business? You know, it's it's healthcare, it's hospitals, it's universities, it's it's. Uh, uh, it's, you know, arts and culture. It's communities of faith. It's a beautiful, clean environment for families to go out and be together in. These are all the works of nonprofits. You know? Yet, I tell you, and we're, we've become now the third biggest employer in America. You know, so it was really troubling to see both the candidates for the presidency. Neither one has said the word nonprofit or philanthropy. You know, and this is the third biggest employer. So here we are talking about the essential need to create jobs. And here's programs like the DC Central Kitchen. You know, we've added almost 50 jobs in the last year for men and women out of prison who would cost us 45 grand per if they went back. Now they're producing, you know, a great product and they're paying taxes and they're taking care of their families. So I think that, you know, it's essential in every election in America that candidates really start to talk openly about the role nonprofits will play in attracting investment to the community and creating jobs in the community, but also again, keeping that fabric of community alive so that for-profit businesses can thrive also
1: well you've put it eloquently i think you've really made made an important point and um you know i hope people really will go to your website uh, robert egger and check out what you're doing follow your blog and continue to support you in the endeavors as you go west we certainly wish you well and for all who've been listening to visionary leader extraordinary life um thank you for taking time to to be with us and Robert I want to say especially thank you for taking time I know this is a busy time in your life we really appreciate having you on the show
3: It was a big honor Kate and again anybody who wants I'm so easy to find just you know at our Robert Egger on Twitter we'll be friends on Facebook whatever you want however you want to communicate I'm there and I look forward to helping you on the journey
1: thank you so much be safe everybody thank you
0: We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.